I don't know about you, but to me, 2020 has felt a lot longer than the three months that we've experienced so far. This has been quite the year. If you can remember back to January 1st, 2020, seems like a lifetime ago, President Russell M. Nelson sent out a tweet, a Facebook post, a, a blog message, inviting all of us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ to celebrate this year as the bicentennial year of the first vision of Joseph Smith. As we commemorate this ongoing restoration that we're a part of, President Nelson invited us to do several things, one of which was to read afresh the account of the first vision as published in the Pearl of Great Price. And I'd like to do that with you today. In fact, I got a new set of scriptures without any markings so that I could truly read afresh this account. I don't have any of my notes. I have taught Joseph Smith history many times in the past in various classes, but I want to come at it with fresh new eyes to be able to see what the Lord would have me learn, and perhaps you learn as well as we do this. So I hope you're up for the adventure. I'm just going to read and, and discuss the first 20 verses. There's a, a second section from about verse 21 to 26 or 27, where Joseph describes the persecution that he faced in the aftermath. Uh, and then he goes into the coming forth of the Book of Mormon with the visits of the angel Moroni, the restoration of the priesthood, and so on. Joseph Smith history is a masterpiece, but I just want to read together these 20 verses afresh and see what the Lord would have us know. So I hope you'll join me. Verse 1. Owing to the many reports which have been put in circulation by evil-disposed and designing persons in relation to the rise and progress of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all of which have been designed by the authors thereof to militate against its character as a church and its progress in the world. Notice the reason Joseph is writing this. This is an odd way to begin a history. Uh, this is not in the beginning. Uh, this is not a long time ago in a western New York hamlet far, far away. This is, there's a reason for our teaching this. There's a reason to produce this history, and it's because there are reports that are in circulation put out there by evil-disposed and designing persons. Anti-Mormonism is as old as Mormonism. Darkness has as much experience as light in many ways. And what Joseph was up against in trying to explain what was happening, the church was growing by leaps and bounds. I've spent the last 10 years or so studying anti-religious rhetoric, anti-religious conflict. How do people attack one another in issues of faith? And I'm amazed that usually there is a spike in persecution when there is a spike in growth. There was a huge amount of anti-shaker rhetoric, anti-shaker literature, when shakerism was growing. I think there's one shaker left, some poor little old lady in Maine right now. Uh, there's not a whole lot of anti-shaker rhetoric anymore. Now we love them, we buy their furniture, we're, we're the quaint little piece of Americana. But as the church grows, there are those who will militate against its character. Notice, by the way, to militate against its character as a church. That, that's an interesting thing that's happening in our day, especially in the wake of all that's come out from the Wall Street Journal and the, the, the wealth of the church. Uh, there was a, years ago, there was an, a, an article, I think, in Time or Life, some big magazine, Newsweek maybe, that said Mormon Inc. Incorporated, that uh, militating against this character as a church. Is this a money-making venture? Is this, what is this? 
even people inside the church that sometimes treat it as though it weren't a church. Uh, Sister Bonnie Oscarson gave an amazing talking conference years ago about how do we view, is, the quorum, is this a quorum of the Twelve or is this a board of directors? Is this a church or is this a social club? Is this something that we can dictate and determine or is this the kingdom of God upon the earth? Again, the, there are reports in circulation. There are people attacking and it's always been that way. Uh, as one of my, for one of my master's theses, I did a study of every newspaper article I could possibly find during the lifetime of Joseph Smith that described the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. There are hundreds of them. I was amazed to see the character of those trying to militate against the church, to be able to see how frequently, how almost invariably, the word that was spreading around the United States at the time about Mormonism was evil disposed, it was designing, it was militating against its character as a church. And as a result of that, Joseph says, middle of verse 1, I have been induced to write this history to disabuse the public mind. What a verb, to disabuse. This suggests that the public mind had been abused. I really got that sense in all the research that I did for that master's thesis, that the public mind, I wanted to see, again, if you just read the newspapers, if you never knew anything else about the church, but you just saw what was kind of in the water, in the air, what did people assume about it? What, what were you hearing? And it was amazing how abused the public mind was. It's been that way ever since. And so what Joseph Smith is trying to do in giving them a true history is to disabuse them. I think sometimes we have to unlearn before we can relearn. Sometimes there are false impressions. And honestly, I was amazed to think of any of our pioneer, pioneer ancestors, if a Latter-day Saint missionary knocked on their door, what would they have to get through or get over or get around as far as their misconceptions or preconceived notions would have been based on the things that they heard or read about the coming forth of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, first thing then, to disabuse the public mind. And second, to put all inquirers after truth in possession of the facts. I love this. Joseph just wants to put in possession of the facts any inquire after truth. This is what happened. You can do with it as you may. In fact, he says, I want to put you in possession of the facts as they have transpired in relation both to myself and the church. This is going to be about his history, but also about the church's history. Those two are inextricably linked. That's why often people trying to take down the church, they want to take down Joseph Smith because the two are so intertwined. Uh, in relation both to myself and the church, so far as I have such facts in my possession. Now, that's an interesting admission, too, historically. I want to give you the facts as they've transpired and as I have them in my uh, possession. It almost seems like there's a temporal split there. As This is what happened, and here's the facts as I have them. And sometimes that's, that's all we can have. So often we don't have all the facts as they transpired. We have what's in possession. I study history. That's where my degrees are, are. And to see, we are at the mercy of documents. And so to be able to have 
what we have, I'm grateful for. There is so much more I wish we had, so many more documents, so many other things. Uh, but to be to be open to whatever else comes, I'm grateful for the transparency of the church history department right now, uh, the Joseph Smith Papers Project. It's amazing how much information is we're being flooded with uh, so that we can have the facts as far as we can possibly possess them. Verse 2, in this history I shall present the various events in relation to this church in truth and righteousness. I'm going to present them. A friend of mine pointed out that later on in this chapter there are two other P words. This one is simply present. Joseph is not trying to, to prove. That's the one of the others. He's not trying to promote. That's the other. He's simply trying to present. Uh, Arthur Henry King was a convert to the church, an incredible literary scholar who joined the church and later became an English professor at Brigham Young University. And he talks about how simple and straightforward, rhetorically, Joseph Smith history really is. He says, I was amazed that I wasn't trying to be pulled or pushed or proven I was just having information presented those aren't his words that's those are Joseph's words but to see the way Arthur Dr. King said he said I have spent my whole career trying not to be impressed by things does that sound like your English professors he said but I couldn't help but be impressed by the straightforward simplicity of Joseph's account in the Pearl of Great Price he said, I could tell that this is a man who believed what he said and was simply trying to present truth. He wasn't trying to make me feel anything. This is what happened. Take it or leave it. You see the similar approach in, what is it, section 127 of the Doctrine and Covenants when Joseph is like, you know what? I've had an interesting life. Persecution, it, deep water is what I want to swim in. It's always been this way. As if I must have been good or evil uh, intended. He says, I'll let you judge. I'll let you be the judge of that. Be it good or evil, leave it in the hands of God. I, I love how, how almost nonchalant Joseph is in his, with his reputation in these passages. I'll, I'll let you judge. I'm just going to present the history. He says, I will present the facts or the events in relation to this church and truth and righteousness as they have transpired or as they at present exist. Again, there's this seems to be this juxtaposition as far as historiography is concerned. This is these are the things as they transpired, or as they now at present exist. And there's a difference there. I think sometimes we're so close to the action, we don't have the perspective yet to see if if it means anything. I'll I'll, I'll say this: nobody called World War One World War One in the 1920s or 30s. It wasn't until there was a World War Two that they had to go back and go and say, I guess that was World War I. Y2K was a huge scare at the end of 1999. That would have made all the history books if they'd been written as they transpired. But as they at present exist, 20 years later we can look back and say Y2K, the Y2K scare was not scary at all. Nothing came of it. So that's, is it even going to make the history books? Again, if, if you're trying to make sense of history, I, I love the fact that Joseph is grappling with both. This is what I thought it meant in 1820. This is what I know it now means in 1838. And we can do the same thing in, in the history of the church now. Things that loomed large in the moment that have 
diminished in significant sense or vice versa. Being now 1838, the eighth year since the organization of the said church, he now begins his story. This is where we, this is where we would probably assume the story would begin rather than those first two verses of explaining kind of why he's writing. I was born in the year of our Lord, 1805, on the 23rd day of December. I remember once asking a seminary class, just kind of off the cuff, how old was he when that happened? And they looked at me in disbelief going, wait, how old was he when he wrote this? I'm like, no, no, no. How old was he when that happened in verse 3, when he was born in the year of our Lord, 1805? And they're like, what? He was zero. I'm like, no, 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 really, how old was he? Some of the more, I guess some of the people that just got out of biology class came and said, nine months? I'm like, no, I'm not talking gestation. How old was he? And it was just a fun way to, to start talking about who Joseph was pre-mortally, among the noble and great spirits that God said, these I will make my rulers. The ones that had been foreordained. Joseph himself said, I suppose I was foreordained because he just said, Everyone who's been, who, who works for the salvation of other people in this life was foreordained to that very responsibility before having come. Uh, Joseph Smith was born in 1805 as a very, very old baby. The same could be said of each of us. That here's a man who was foreordained and prepared from before the foundation of the world to help bring forth the restored gospel. You can see 138 is the best place to study that. All of us who received our first lessons in the world of the Spirit. Well, Joseph would have been uh, among the teacher's pets in those pre-mortal classrooms. He was born in the town of Sharon, Windsor County, state of Vermont. I don't know if you had a chance to go there, but it's well worth the trip. I used to teach teenagers that often would go on church history trips for their senior trip. And when they came back, I'd ask them, what were your favorite spots? Uh, a lot of their favorites I expected. They loved the Sacred Grove. They loved the Hill Cumorah. They loved uh, Nauvoo. They loved Kirtland. They said there were two places that surprised them, and in telling me about it, surprised me. They said, I, was, I was amazed how many different people independently would say, I didn't expect anything here, but it was amazing. One of those places was Adam on Diamond. They loved Adam on Diamond, yet they said, there was nothing there. It's like open farm fields. But there's a spirit there that is amazing. And this other place that they said that they were surprised at how much they loved it and what they felt there was Sharon, Windsor County, state of Vermont. I am grateful to have been able to be there and just to feel the peace of that place. I didn't expect anything either. I'm like, well, technically Joseph didn't really do anything here. He showed up. If anything, give Lucy Mack the credit, okay? Uh, she did all the work that day. But there's something about those wooded hillsides in Vermont that an amazing soul came to earth. In fact, you know, an amazing soul came to an amazing family. Verse 3 continues, My father, Joseph Smith Sr., Left the state of Vermont and moved to Palmyra, Ontario, now Wayne County, on the, in the state of New York, when I was in my 10th year, or thereabouts. Uh, again, 1800 and froze to death. I Hopefully you've read the book Saints and seen why they would need to move. This rendezvous with the Hill Cumorah and, and the need to be pushed westward. 
I was in my 10th year or thereabouts. In about four years after my father's arrival in Palmyra, he moved with his family into Manchester in the same county of Ontario. Closer and closer, inching to the, to the Hill Camorra. His family consisting of 11 souls. This is, I guess, uh, big Latter-day Saint families began at the very beginning, right? Namely, my father, uh, Joseph Smith, my mother, Lucy Smith, whose name previous to her marriage was Mac, daughter of Solomon Mac. Great family lines on both with interesting histories that we don't have time for. My brother's Alvin, who died November 19th, 1823, in the 26th year of his age. Interesting, he'd bring up his death, uh, not just because it's passed by now and he's confirming that or clarifying that history, but also the role of Alvin's death in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Uh, Alvin's excitement for that coming forth. Alvin played a part far beyond the time he spent uh, in the Smith family. Hiram, myself, Samuel Harrison, William, Don Carlos, and my sister Sophronia, Catherine, and Lucy. This is the first family of the Restoration, and the fact that in spite of differences of personality, William was an interesting person, for example, uh, in spite of a lot of different pulls in different directions before Joseph's experience, this was a family that supported him and followed him all the way through. Verse 5, sometime in the second year after our removal to Manchester, there was in the place where we lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. That's uh, putting it lightly. This is the Second Great Awakening. This is the burned over district, as it was called, Western New York. Burned over as in these fires of revival faith. It was intense. Uh, prior to this, you would have seen the biggest churches in America being the Congregationalists, for example. Uh, the Anglicans were the established religion in, in colonial period. And on, in the aftermath of the Second Great Awakening, particularly, you get the Presbyterians, the Baptists, and the Methodists just swelling in numbers. We'll see them factor in later on. It commenced with the Methodists. They were incredible revivalists, but soon became general among all the sects in that region of country. Indeed, the whole district of country seemed affected by it, and great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties, being cre which created no small stir and division among the people. Lots of stir. There was plenty of that. These were tens of thousands of people. This is in a, in a time where most people lived in small country villages, and never to see that many people together in one, in one place, and yet to have this stir, this massive stir where tens of thousands would come, and sometimes they would last for days and even weeks, where ministers, uh, evangelists would be preaching around the clock, uh, taking turns, different congregations, different, or excuse me, different denominations being represented, singing and praying and all kinds of things. Uh, it was, they, they were intense. Some people used to joke that uh, yeah, more babies were, there was as much birth as there was rebirth uh, due to revivals. Uh, people being conceived uh, and experiences in the flesh as much as there were experiences in the spirit. Some people would come just as a spectator, uh, wanting to see what was taking place. Others would come to ridicule and make and mock and make fun and just try to uh, oh, kind of, derail the spiritual experiences that were taking place. It, it, it was intense, intense times. And division, lots of division. Some crying low here and others low there. Some were contending, interesting word, to contend. This, uh, the, the letters of Paul speak of contending for the faith, but contention, uh, there's going to be both of this taking place. Some contending for the Methodist faith, some for the Presbyterian, some for the Baptist. Again, those were the three that took greatest advantage of the Second Great Awakening. 
For notwithstanding the great love which these, the converts to these different faiths expressed at the time of their conversion, and the great zeal manifested by their respective clergy, who were active in getting up and promoting this extraordinary scene of religious feeling, that's the other P that this friend of mine mentioned. If Joseph is simply presenting truth as he has it, there were others that are promoting things. Just how do I get people to feel religion? In fact, Joseph Smith himself said at some of these revivals, he would see other people get religion. That was the term that was used. And he wanted to get religion like they did. He wanted to sing and shout. There were all these kind of exercises, they call them, from, from the, the jerking exercise to the barking exercise. The people would swoon and faint. Some would get up and swirl and dance. Uh, all kinds of interesting manifestations. Some felt were from God. Others felt were from the devil. Uh, later on in the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph will receive a revelation that clarifies some of these things because some of those exercises even started entering into early Latter-day Saint worship. Uh, that's when jo the Lord clarifies, if it doesn't edify, it's not of me. I'm not claiming all of the things that people are pegging on me. Uh, but there are people that are trying to promote religious feeling, extraordinary scenes of it. Uh, and Joseph Smith himself said, I wanted to sing and shout. I wanted to feel it like they did. I just couldn't. I love that about Joseph Smith, that he is not trying to fake it till he makes it. He's not trying to pretend that he's feeling things that he's not. I would suggest that, by the way, to any of you who are struggling in your faith or wondering if you have a testimony, no need to fake it. You don't have to pretend to get religion. If you're not feeling what other people are feeling, keep seeking. You don't have to promote feelings within you. You can allow Heavenly Father to present the Spirit and confirm truth as it's been presented to you. And just be patient and wait till it comes. That's what Joseph did. Middle of verse 6. Let them join what sect they pleased. Easier said than done. Yet when the converts began to file off, interesting verb there, just filing off, who am I following? Which, it's interesting sometimes we'll do that, where uh, we use public opinion not as a thermometer, but as a thermostat. Thermometers measure the things that are really there. Thermostats determine temperature based on what you want. Public opinion, which was a huge element, uh, the same time period as when Alexis de Tocqueville, the French traveler, comes and tours the United States and talks about the tyranny of the majority all the time. Talks about public opinion. And public opinion was meant to be, I want to know what everybody's feeling so that this country can be a true democracy. And yet it ended up being more, or we take it now as more of a thermostat, as we look around to opinion polls, not to say this is what I feel, but rather what am I supposed to feel? Uh, and that's sad to me. We, we lick our fingers and and put them in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. Uh, and, that's, and that's not how it's supposed to be. When the converts began to file off, are more people going to the Presbyterians? I guess I'm supposed to be Presbyterian. They were the more socially respectable of the three. Uh, oh, well, people are filing off towards the Methodists? Well, maybe, like, who, who's winning? Which side am I supposed to be on? Uh, well, they're, they're filing off, some to one party, some to another. It was seen that the seemingly good feelings of both the priests and the converts were more pretended than real. No wonder if we're promoting, if we're trying to get up religious feeling, no wonder often those feelings end up being more pretended than real. That's another sad aftermath of the history of revivalism. Often you get these massive revivals 
due to all of this promotion. But after time, that spike in church membership tends to go back down to pre-revival uh, levels or slightly above pre-revival levels, but nowhere near what they were at the peak of the revival. More pretended than real. For a scene of great confusion and bad feeling. So again, this religious feeling turns into bad feeling. This commitment turns into confusion. This love turns into contention. Priests contending against priests, convert against convert, so that all their good feelings, one for another, if they ever had any, were entirely lost in a strife. There's again that militant word, contend, strife of words in a contest about opinion. And is really that all it is? Are these just words we're throwing around? Are these opinions that we happen to have? Meanwhile, verse 7, I was in this time in my 15th year. My father's family was proselyted to the Presbyterian faith, and four of them joined that church, namely my mother Lucy, my brothers Hiram and Samuel Harrison, my sister Sophronia. Father Smith, by the way, didn't want to have anything to do really with organized religion. Uh, I believe I've read that, that there was a copy of Thomas Paine's Age of Reason on the family bookshelf. Uh, some skepticism. The Age of Reason uh, tries to tear down revealed re religion. Uh, Thomas Paine tore down the monarchy of England in common sense, and then he tried to tear down Christianity in the Age of Reason. And that skepticism was part of Joseph's family background as well. So you've got skeptics or or I'm spiritual, not religious. That would have Joseph Smith Sr. would have loved what millennials are saying these days of I'm I'm spiritual, not religious. That was that was Joseph Smith Sr. Uh, Lucy and some of the kids go in the Presbyterian direction. Others, Joseph Smith himself is going to start leaning somewhere else. Again, this is an open-minded family. This is, we're okay with difference of opinion. This isn't you, my way or the highway. This isn't as long as you're living under my roof, you have to do things my way. There was a, I don't know, an openness in the Smith family that I think served Joseph really, really well and served the early church well as Joseph himself seemed to be more open-minded than many of his own followers. Uh, there was a Methodist minister that came to that came to Nauvoo and wanted to preach. And Joseph says, fine, go for it. And the Methodist minister assumed, well, why even try? You're not going to let me teach what I want to teach. And Joseph was like, no, be right, be my guest. And his presidential platform, it was, I'll die for the religious freedom of a Baptist or a Presbyterian or anyone as quickly as I die for my own religious freedom. Uh, again, I think part of that is a reflection of his early growing up. And I think there's room in our families and in our faith for people to have difference of opinion, uh, to wonder, to start exploring, trusting that faith is found right here. And if, if we'll trust them with God, God will lead them right. Verse 8, during this time of great excitement, my mind was called up. I love that. Called up. His family was proselytized, proselytized, proselyted, excuse me, to one faith. His mind is called up as if God were inviting him into a vertical conversation pattern instead of the horizontal ones that his family was being pulled in. Called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. There's nothing permanently wrong with uneasiness. If you're struggling in your faith, if you're feeling uneasy, if you just don't know, Neither did Joseph. But though my feelings were deep and often poignant, still I kept myself aloof from all these parties. 
though I attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit. I'm, I'm amazed at how much homework Joseph was willing to do to attend these different churches. I love going to other churches. Uh, when I lived in Tennessee, I would go as often as occasion would permit. And I'd go to the Catholics, and I'd go to the, 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 the Quakers, and I'd go to the Baha'i faith, and I'd go to the Methodists, and the Presbyterians, and the Episcopalians, and, and I loved it to just attend their meetings as often as occasion would permit, to rejoice with them, to see the good that they're doing. Uh, Joseph was trying to make sense of it all, and he would attend, but he still kept himself aloof. I'm not going to commit till I know. In process of time, important phrase, be patient with yourself and with the process. In process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be united with them. So often when we're exercised in our search for inspiration, are we still willing to exercise agency along the way? Remember section uh, eight of the doctrine, no, nine of the Doctrine and Covenants to Oliver Cowdery, you took no thought save it was to ask me. You've got to come up with a solution. You need to study it out. Lean in a certain direction. Feel partial. Feel some desire. And then ask me if, if you're right. Then I'll let you know. But God prefers, I, I often said that God will give us direction if we will provide momentum. If you've ever had to drive a car without power steering, it is so hard to turn a vehicle that is stationary. But if we'll start moving in a certain direction, it's very easy for God then to turn the wheel. But we need to start the process. So he's leaning in the direction of the Methodists. By the way, in divinity school, I took a whole semester class on the history of Methodism. Amazing faith. I love Methodism. Their hymn book is like twice as big as ours. I'm totally jealous. Uh, John Wesley was an incredible person. His brother Charles, equally so. His mom was amazing, Susanna. Uh, but just, in fact, I was the only non-Methodist in class. And the first day we were going around, there were maybe 30 of us, introducing ourselves, and the professor wanted to ask, or wanted to know, why are we taking this class? 29 out of the 30 said, oh, I have to take this class. I'm studying to become a Methodist minister, and I have to know, I have to know the history of my church. When it got to my turn, I was proudly hey, I'm so excited to be here. I don't, I don't have to be. I'm, I might be the only non I think I was the only non-Methodist in the room, but also the one who came by choice and not by compulsion. Uh, and then when they were kind of looking at me in disbelief, what, what's a Mormon doing among the Methodists? I just laughed and I said, you know, Joseph Smith, he's our guy. Uh, he, he was this close to becoming Methodist himself. And I'm just curious to see what we missed. Uh, it was a great experience, uh, and, and I was well received by the Methodists in that class. He felt some desire to unite, but so great were the confusion and strife, same words, among the different denominations that it was impossible for a person young as I was and so unacquainted with men and things to come to any certain conclusion. That's what he wanted. I have leanings. I'm somewhat partial, but I want certainty, certain conclusions who was right and who was wrong. My mind at times was greatly excited. The cry and tumult were so great and incessant. Is this how often truth is on your mind? Is it incessant? Or do occasionally, occasionally I wonder, eh, maybe I should pray about it. Maybe I should dust off my scriptures and take another look. For Joseph, it was incessant. The Presbyterians were most decided against the Baptists and Methodists and used all powers of both reason and sophistry to prove their errors or at least to make the people think they were in error. It's interesting that how much of the approach here was negative. One religion is decided against another. 
They're trying to prove errors. They're trying to make people think they are in error. In all of my studies of anti-Mormonism, it's amazing how negative it all seems to be. And it's so much easier to deconstruct someone else's faith than it is to construct faith in something else. So often anti-Mormonism tends to be a zero-sum game. We're, they're either wrong or they're right. And if they're wrong, we must be right. And so often it's not a matter of proving something. They're not inviting you into anything else. They're not trying to prove. They're just trying to disprove. It's a negative approach. There's more we could say about that. Also, by the way, to prove their errors, or at least to make you think they were in error, that speaks volumes. This is faith. You can't really prove or disprove anything. That's not what religion is. It's not a matter of proof. This is a, the, another P, right? Do we present? Do we promote? Do we prove? In this case, you can't prove the things of God, and you can't disprove the things of God. So what are you left with? You hope you can make people think certain things. You're left with rhetoric. You're left with persuasion. You're left with shame. You're left with rumor. You're left with all the stuff Joseph talked about back in verse 1. Evil, designing things, trying to militate against the true character of something. Uh, be, just be aware of that. Uh, the attempts that people have make to prove or disprove things when either side is impossible and instead are simply trying to make you think a certain way. They use reason and sophistry more than anything, or at least what they claim to be reasonable and sophisticated. Interesting words, because if I can claim reason to my side, that's what Thomas Paine was doing in attacking Christianity. What was the name of his book? The Age of Reason. We have it all. We're reasonable. They're absurd. We're rational. They're insane. Uh, to, to see that using claiming reason on our side, and then sophistry, to try to make it sound sophisticated. Sophistry, the, the, love, the love of thought, uh, philosophy. If I can, again, try to convince you that you're wrong. On the other hand, verse 9 continues, the Baptists and Methodists in their turn were equally zealous in endeavoring to establish their own tenets and disprove all others. At least they were trying to establish something on their side. That I'm at least grateful for. I've had some friends that uh, would come and say, oh, we learned about you guys at church on Sunday. Uh, and they'd go be going to some uh, Christian church, typically. This happened in the South often. It even happened in high school in L.A. I'd have a friend that would come and talk to me about the things. This is what we talked about you yesterday in church on Sunday. And there were times I would just smile and say, you know what? I, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but we never talk about Jesus. I guess we're so busy talking about the gospel and the restoration and the fullness that we've been blessed with. I don't remember a single Sunday school class in my 45 years of church membership where we said, well, this is how the so-and-so were wrong. We, we, we're, not, we're not trying to disprove all others. I think it was George Albert Smith. We're not trying to tear down other people's houses to force them into moving into ours. Just build a house. Let people tour it and let them choose where they want to live. Verse 10, in the midst of this war of words and tumult of opinions, again, militant, military language runs throughout these first 10 verses, doesn't it? I often said to myself, what is to be done? Who, is, who of all these parties are right? 
Or are they all wrong together? That's a possibility too, as he would soon see. If any one of them be right, which is it? And the real question, how shall I know it? How do we come to know the things of God? Verse 11. We're halfway done. There's the first 10 verses. Verse 11. While I was laboring under the extreme difficulties caused by the contests of these parties of religionists. And those are difficulties. Those are extreme. When we make religion a contest, when we make the, the search for truth uh, a conflict, no wonder it becomes difficult. But what does he do? I was one day reading the epistle of James, first chapter and fifth verse, which reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. They give it to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. That verse opened the heavens initially for Joseph. One of those times where you read a scripture and you think, that was put in that book just for me. Because when Joseph read it, verse 12, never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. No one has ever been floored by scripture quite like that one did to him. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again. Notice what he just said. The two body parts that were engaged in this wrestle. Remember section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants? He defines revelation as when I speak to the mind and the heart. That is the spirit of revelation as far as God is concerned. Joseph reads this verse from the scriptures. And what happens? Never had any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force in every feeling of my heart. But then what's next? I reflected upon it again and again. He's feeling things. He's thinking things. This is revelation. This is why this verse of Scripture is coming so powerfully to him. If the Scriptures are boring to you, it's because they're not revelatory. And they become revelatory when they speak to the mind and the heart. When you are allowing yourself to feel things and your mind is, is thinking, gaining new insight, seeing things you've never seen before. That's when Scripture study becomes powerful, as it was for Joseph. I knew that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. There's a lot of humility in that statement. How to act, I did not know, and unless I could get more wisdom than I then had, I would never know. Again, humility. Have we come to a point where we can admit to God, I can't figure this out on my own. I have to have your help or I'll never get there. It's ironic to me that some people want to find God without involving God. Do, do we not see the, the irony, the tragic irony of that? Conversations that I have with people that are trying to understand the things of God, but almost put like this lead shield on neckline and say, only talk to my head. I only want to have a rational, sophisticated conversation. Prove it to me. I don't want you to promote any religious feeling. Okay, I'm not trying to promote, but for me to present religion, which requires revelation, it's going to have to engage both body parts. Uh, how dare we think we can arrive at the truths of God without allowing God to be a part of the process? So he finally admits it. I, I don't know. If I can't get more wisdom, I'm stuck here. And I need God's help. For the teachers of religion of the, ver of the different sects understood the same passages of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. I love the last half of verse 12. 
uh, again, having studied American religious history with its diversity of denominations, that verse sums it up practically perfectly. Why are there so many Protestantisms? Because they all have the Bible. They agreed on that. When Martin Luther separated himself from the Catholic Church, he said, we will not have your priesthood, but we won't need it. We'll have a priesthood of all believers. We won't need your authority. Our authority will be the Holy Word of God. Uh, wonderful thought. But it proves naive because of the lack of interpretive unity. The Bible says all kinds of things to all kinds of different people. I've sometimes joked and said, if you can't find a, a Bible verse to back you up on what you believe, no matter what you believe, then you haven't looked hard enough or you haven't twisted and, and reinterpreted or rested the scriptures enough to make it agree with you. The Civil War was the great... Oh, the Civil War convinced people of the reality of what Joseph Smith is here saying in 1838. The Civil War is what taught people, wait a minute, we all, I mean, it's etched in stone on the wall of the Lincoln Memorial, right, from the second inaugural address, that they all pray to the same God and they read the same Bible. They understand the same passages of Scripture so differently. Northern ministers were saying the Bible is anti-slavery. Southern ministers were saying the Bible is pro-slavery. And the churches split before the states did. The Southern Presbyterians, the Southern Methodists, the Southern Baptists, all split from their northern counterparts. The churches seceded before the states did. In fact, some suggest that maybe that's what precipitated the final split politically. It's like if the churches can't even get along, then how on earth are the states going to? And it all came down to interpretation. We can't agree on what the scriptures say. I do a lot of interfaith work with wonderful people of other faiths. I love it. I love learning with them and from them. I'm amazed at how often, though, our conversations come down to the interpretation of Scripture. I've had so many conversations with people that say, well, but the Bible says, like, you interpret the Bible to say, oh, but over here the Bible says, you interpret the Bible to say, and we interpret the Bible to say, too. That's all we ever have is interpretation against interpretation. We're some of those teachers of religions of the different sects as well. We understand the same passages of Scripture very differently than our Christian counterparts. The difference is who has the authority to interpret. That could be a topic for a whole other uh, episode someday. Uh, prophets, the authority to interpret Scripture must be on the same level as the authority to reveal Scripture. It must be done through prophets, seers, and revelators. Uh, but Joseph is understanding that early on. They all read the same Bible. They just can't agree with each other. What's, what's the solution then? We have to go one step higher. Through so much of the Renaissance and the Reformation, uh, Advance was the Advantes was the was the, the the watchword. Back to the sources, it's called. Uh, and the source they all went to was the Bible. Do they not see there's still one more step? If we're trying to trace things back to the roots, they stopped one step shy. The scriptures, what's behind that? God. And what I love about Joseph's trip, or return to the sources, Joseph going back to the best source he had, the Bible, the verse that struck him most powerfully was the one verse that almost 
opens up a peephole to go through the scriptures, past the, behind the scriptures, because it said, if any of you lack wisdom, read the scriptures. No, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God. Jo Joseph saw that clearly, uh, perhaps for the first time. I went as far as I could, and then it, I got the one verse that told me, you can still go back farther. Ask God. So he did. At 13, at length, I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion, or else I must do as James directs. That's, there's no other option. There's no other solution. And he arrived at that conclusion at length. You see all these verses about process of time, how much patience is required? Uh, don't beat yourself up if you still haven't found the truth uh, quickly. I at length, there's that word again, came to the determination. So he first, he, uh, he at length came to the conclusion, and then at length came to the determination. Sometimes the conclusion and the determination are two very different things. I know what I need to do. I've reached the right conclusion. But do I want to do it? I think sometimes that's the harder thing to arrive at. I'm determined I'm actually going to do it this time. To ask of God, concluding that if he gave wisdom to them that lacked wisdom and would give liberally and not upbraid, I might venture. I love Joseph's summary in verse 13 to the verse from James in verse 11. What, what stood out to him from that verse? God promised he'd answer. He said he'd do it liberally, that he would be generous with his truth. And he said he wouldn't upbraid. I, I wonder if that's what Joseph was concerned about. Will God be angry at me for asking? Will, will someone doubt me or worry about me or misjudge me if I have a question? I love that. I might venture. I'm going to give this a, ch a shot. I'm, I'm going to chance it. Admit my uh, ignorance. Admit my inability to arrive at truth on my own. That verse gave Joseph confidence, and we need to do that for each other. Verse 14. So, in accordance with this, my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful, clear day. He had no idea just how beautiful and just how clear that day would become for him. Early in the spring, beautiful timing, emerging from a winter of death, of cold, this coming out of the apostasy into a rebirth, a restoration of beautiful new growth, early in the spring of 1820, 200 years ago, right now. It was the first time in my life that I had made such an attempt. For amidst all my anxieties, I had never as yet made the attempt to pray vocally. I assume he prayed, but to do it vocally, does that make a difference? To me it has. It, there's something about saying something, about doing it out loud, to letting people know what you're thinking, to add that much, one more layer of reality, that you're engaging in a conversation and truly believing that there is a conversation partner. If you've never tried to pray vocally amidst all your anxieties, I, I would suggest you follow Joseph's example here. 
And maybe that's why Jesus says to enter into your closets. It can still be private. It can still be personal. But it needs to be a conversation with God. Verse 15. After I had retired to the place where I had previously designed to go. So he planned this. This was not some fly-by-night seat of the pants. Uh, let's just give it a shot. It was at length. It was conclusion. It was determination. It was act on this. It was anxieties. It was a long time. And he designed in advance to go there. He went, having looked around me and finding myself alone. I love that phrase, too. Reminds me of Jesus and the woman taken in adultery. By the end of the conversation, when the conversation that mattered took place, it was just the two of them, as everyone else had left. And Jesus could judge her, and she could see her own situation, independent of anyone else's gaze. I think sometimes we're we're praying and we're too focused on the fact we're not alone with God. We want to be heard by others or we're wondering what other people will think or, again, filing off in certain directions and they're going to want this or they're going to say that. Just alone with God. I kneeled down and notice he didn't say and said my prayers. He said, I kneeled down. He didn't even say, and began to pray. The verb he uses for his prayer is beautiful. I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. That offering up is the language of sacrifice. I, I had desires, and I gave them to God. I offered them. I kind of desire to be a Methodist. Is that what you want me to do? I will if you want me to. You, I, I desire to be close to my family, and half of them are Presbyterians. Do, is that where you want me to go? I desire, as we'll see later, I desire to fit in. Joseph had such a fun, loving personality, his native, cheery temperament. He was an extrovert. He was the life of the party. He loved people. He valued friendship, even to the point of putting his own life in danger over friends or because of his friendship for them, I should say. He cared what people thought. But he had to even offer that on the altar. I, I desire to be included. I desire to be fit to fit in. I desire not to be made a laughing stock, but I will offer up the desires of my heart to God. I think that's when Moroni and Moroni's promise says we have to pray with real intent. I think that's what he's after. What are you going to do with this? I think sometimes I wish I would have understood this as a missionary. When, oh, I prayed about the Book of Mormon. I never felt a thing. Okay. If you had felt something, would you have acted on it? Because if the answer to that is no, then no wonder the answer for you was no. Or, in, to be more accurate, no answer at all. God was saving you from accountability but here's a man who a young boy who is willing to offer up his desires that's a prayer I had scarcely done so when immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me Satan's timing is often pretty good uh, to immediately come when someone has scarcely begun to submit their will to the will of God uh, the moment we start turning where is that verse? Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. Where the moment we begin to repent, 
immediately the plan of salvation begins to work for you. I think it's Alma 34. Uh, the moment, as soon as we repent, the word immediately, the plan of salvation starts to work. You've turned around, you've done that 180, and boom, now the, the plan of salvation that you had been fighting against now starts working for you. And it's interesting that immediately the enemy to the plan of salvation starts to work on us as well. It had... Oh, where are we at? I, it had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. And knowing what he was about to speak, no wonder the tongue was bound. Thick darkness gathered around me. It seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. One of Satan's nicknames is the destroyer, and that destruction is real. But, Joseph says in verse 16, exerting all my powers, exertion, what kind of power is he exerting? That's interesting. Exerting all my powers. What is he? This is an unseen being, he'll say in, later in this verse. What is he throwing punches at an unseen? Satan has no body. He's not corporeal. And so what, what does Joseph mean by exerting all his powers? Well, isn't it in the lectures on faith where he says that faith is mental exertion? It's the principle of power in each of us? So exerting all my powers to call upon God, he could equally have said, and exercising all my faith in God to call upon him, to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which had seized upon me at the very moment, again, timing, at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair, abandon myself to destruction, not an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world, and who had such marvelous power as I had never before felt in any being. This is real. This is a, I mean, before it was a, a contest of, a, a strife of words and a contest of opinions. This is a real contest. This is not just a war of words. This is an unseen power, but an actual being. But in that moment of greatest alarm, the moment he was about to give up, and that's the moment we have to get past, the Lord usually waits until that exact moment. But if we can endure it, then at just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which gradually, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. I loved saying these words as a missionary. Being able to look people in the eye and say in Spanish, Yo vi una columna de luz más brillante que el sol directamente arriba de mi cabeza. To be able to testify of these things was life-changing for me as a missionary. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. He still doesn't even know what this light is, but he's free. And I think so often the Lord frees us even before he introduces himself to us. Often we come to know him through that freeing experience. That's at least been the case for me. The times I come to know God most, most closely and personally are the times of my repentance when I feel freed from darkness in moments that I was going to give up 
and I feel delivered. And then I come to know my deliverer. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description. They defy all description. No wonder there are multiple attempts on Joseph's part to explain the first vision. This whole experience defies all description. I'm grateful he gave us as many tries as he did to put the ineffable into words. Whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. I wish he would have included the first word that came out of Heavenly Father's mouth, because if he called him by name and then said, pointing to the other, the complete quote would read, Joseph, this is my beloved son, hear him. I testify that God knows our name. He knows our situation. He knows our weaknesses, our strengths. He knows our hopes. He knows the desires of our heart and hopes that we're willing to offer them up to him. He knows us. I love my students. And if there's one thing I wish I knew better was a perfect recall of all of their names. I, I wish, I pray for that. I, God knows us. Verse 18, my object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right that I might know which to join. Father Bednarz pointed out the connection there. It wasn't just I wanted to know, it's that I wanted to do. I had real intent. I was going to act on whatever I, answer I got. Uh, no sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself. There's that of to get back in possession of myself. Again, these experiences we sometimes have from God are so life-changing, so breathtaking. It's, it takes a while to even come back down from the mountaintop. When I got possession of myself, so I was to be able to speak. It's interesting. Satan takes his voice away back in verse 15. The Father and the Son take his voice away in a, a very different way, a beautiful way here. Once he can speak again, I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right. For at this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong. Earlier he said, could they all be wrong? I guess it crossed his mind, but it never entered into his heart. I mean, it may be like, really? I guess it's possible. Could we all be off? Maybe this whole thing is false. But to enter into his heart, would God really have left us all with no... I mean, would the, the, the famine be that widespread never entered my heart in which I should join I was answered that I must join none of them for they were all wrong and the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight not all their members not all their priests not all, just their creeds when Elder Holland spoke at Harvard a couple years ago and was talking about the issue of our Mormons Christians. He said a, power, a powerful thing. He said, well, are we Christians like, do we believe in Jesus? Oh yeah, definitely. Are we Christians like giving him our sins and relying wholly upon the merits and mercy of his, of his grace? Yes, we're those kinds of Christians. But if you're talking about council convening philosophy-flavored Christianity, then no. 
We're not that kind of Christian. Uh, council convening, credo Christianity. We do not reject Christ or Christianity. We reject the creeds that were post-biblical. Uh, those are what are our abomination in God's sight. And if you read the history behind those, it makes a little bit more sense why God would not be accepting of them. I say that with all respect to my friends of other faiths. Uh, I, I love what you do. I support you. I am grateful for the years we spent together in divinity school. But I also stand behind restored Christianity over credo Christianity. Their professors were all corrupt. Now, that's a hard one to swallow as well. But those that profess the creeds have been corrupted. It doesn't have to be corrupt like you're causing this, but it's been caused to you. Uh, there's an active corrupt and there's a passive corrupt. There's a cause and there's an effect. And I believe that this is the effect. Uh, they have been corrupted. Past participle is what we would use. That, and here he quotes Isaiah 29, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And that power will include priesthood, that power will include covenants, that power will include God himself revealing himself as he always has through prophets and apostles. That is his method, and he's always followed it when his gospel has been upon the earth in its fullness. Verse 20, he again forbade me to join with any of them. And many other things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. Oh, what I would give to know what else the Lord said to him. So much of what we've seen so far is the don't do. I would love to know more of what the Lord said as far as what to do for Joseph. That will become much more clear. Fast forward 1823 when Moroni comes to give him his mission. Uh, but at this point, all we know for sure is how much of this was what not to do. I think, by the way, sometimes when somebody joins the church, that's what they're left with. I don't know how to be a Latter-day Saint yet, but I know a lot of stuff I'm not supposed to do anymore. And sometimes that leads them into challenges, just like it led Joseph Smith, as he admits later on in this chapter. But among the other things, what were they? I, only, I, I wish we knew. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. I hope our experiences leave us in that way, looking heavenward, just wanting those experiences to continue, wondering when our next experience with God will be. When the light had departed, I had no strength, none of the natural kind anyway. I bet the spiritual was stronger than ever. But soon recovering in some degree, I went home. What a place to go after an experience with God. And as I leaned up to the fireplace, Mother inquired what the matter was. I replied, never mind, all is well. I am well enough off. There's the understatement of the 19th century. Boy, was he well. And the world would be well as a result. I have learned my, for myself, he says to his mom, that Presbyterianism is, is not true. Nothing against Presbyterianism. I, I love Presbyterianism as well. I've been to their churches also. Uh, but he learned, and he's only singling them out because that was the church that his mother had been proselyted to. But he knew that there was something missing. Just like there was something missing in his own life. Something that was going to be filled eventually. He then gives us his aftermath at the end of verse 20. 
It seems as though the adversary was aware at a very early period of my life that I was destined to prove a disturber and an annoyer of his kingdom. Else why should the powers of darkness combine against me? Why the opposition and persecution that arose against me almost in my infancy? Here Joseph ends this section, these first 20 verses, on the same note as he did at the beginning, this persecution against the character of the church and its rise. Opposition and persecution. Why? Because Joseph really was destined to prove a disturber and an annoyer. I love those two words. Having spent much of my career with teenagers who are often described as disturbing or annoying, I love those words. President Packer used to say the only problem with teenagers is that there aren't enough of them. And so if you've ever been called annoying, just tell people you're following the prophet's example. But please make sure you're annoying the right thing. Or in this case, the wrong thing. Uh, make sure you're disturbing and annoying the adversary in his attempts to thwart the work of God. There's so many more layers, I'm sure, that we could un you know, peel away from the 20 verses that we've been studying for the last hour. I hope that the experience has been a positive one for you. It has been for me. Uh, to me, perhaps the most powerful part is just reminiscing in between the lines of experiences I've had where the Holy Ghost has testified to me that this, this account really is true. When I was in high school, President Gordon B. Hinckley was supposed to come to Los Angeles, where I grew up, to speak in a big regional conference. It was going to be in some big, oh, theater or something downtown L.A. I can't remember the, the venue. But there was going to be a regional choir. And I figured that was the closest I would get to the prophet was to be able to sing to the back of his head. So I joined the choir. I'm grateful they let me in, in spite of my lack of talent. And we were going to sing two songs. Uh, one was How Great Thou Art. And the other was Joseph Smith's First Prayer. Uh, one song dedicated to the greatest who ever lived on this earth, Jesus Christ, and the other to one who has done more than any other person, save Jesus only, to bring us back to him, Joseph Smith. I remember I was in my stake center as a high school kid, practicing Joseph Smith's first prayer for our little stake portion of the larger regional choir that would later assemble. And we were singing Joseph Smith's first prayer. I was in the back left-hand corner among the basses and singing, Oh, how lovely was the morning. Joseph said it was beautiful. Radiant beamed the sun above. And I can't remember at what point I was in the song, but all of a sudden I stopped singing because I couldn't keep singing. The Spirit was testifying to me in an unmistakable and undeniable way that what I was singing about was true. That it really happened. That this wasn't just a song that we were singing. This wasn't just a, a made-up fairy tale. To this day, that experience has been life-changing. I knew it, and I knew that God knew it because he was the one that was helping me know at the time that it was real. I've always loved that song ever since. In fact, if I could rewrite that fourth verse, Joseph, this is my beloved, 
hear him, oh how sweet the words. I've always dreamed of an arrangement where the men were singing Joseph, and then a pause to let that sink in. Make it all a cappella, just Joseph. Instead of Joseph, this is my beloved, hear him, oh how sweet the word. We, we, the meter of the song forces us to run through it. But Joseph, pause. I know you. You are known of me. This is my beloved. Pause. Do you know him? You need to. Hear him. My one complaint of the meter of the song is it's hear him, oh how sweet the words. And if the tabernacle choir were singing it, I could just envision the men hear him while the women immediately chime in like this choir of angels. Oh, how sweet the words. Just let the father hold on to his note. Hear him as the choir. How sweet the words. That word is sweet. I am grateful for the prophet Joseph Smith. I do not worship him. I know too many of his his foibles and his frailties and his faults, which he admits those are his words from Joseph's ministry. I've read too much about Joseph Smith to ever worship him. But to know he was a prophet, I've also read too much about Joseph Smith to doubt that. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for both sides that keep him where he needs to be, far below divinity, but on the upper reaches of humanity to help connect the two and point us home. I'm grateful for him. I testify that he is a prophet of God who saw what he said he saw. I'm grateful for my testimony of the first vision and pray that it may carry me through until I get to see as I'm seen and know as I am known until someday I hear Jared this is my beloved son hear him I know that voice will be familiar to me then because it's growing familiar to me now as I read and study his word May this season of Bicentennial be a blessing to you as you come to know Joseph as a means to truly come to know Christ as an end. And I leave that with you with my love and my hopes for you during this season that you might feel restored to your relationship with God through this ongoing restoration. Thank you, President Nelson, for this invitation. And thank you, Joseph, for the opportunity to have a fresh read of your amazing words.